Are journalists being punished for encouraging vaccine hesitancy by simply citing documents available through a Freedom of Information Act request? Could high-profile journalists chasing stories the pharmaceutical lobby and the business class wish to keep quiet end up with a target on their backs? Should 5G and the development of a new generation of technology be thanking COVID-19 for masking the effects of their own harmful radiation? How does the chief provincial public health officer in Manitoba respond to claims that health authorities and governments did not act responsibly in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we attend to place an endpoint on coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic by focusing on a few stories not yet covered in detail that further advance concerns about what was done that should be reconsidered as the pandemic appears to retreat into the distance and the body counts continue to grow. In our first half hour, we are joined by Dr. Naomi Wolf, who has been hit by censorship following an interview with her on a radio program about the files she researched on Pfizer's vaccine records obtained through a Freedom of Information request. In our second half hour, we turn to Emerita Professor and celebrated environmental toxicologist Magna Havas to warn of the links between COVID-19 and the massive buildup of radiofrequency radiation in our communities. In our last few minutes, we offer Manitoba's Chief Provincial Public Health Officer, Dr. Brent Rusin, opportunity to respond briefly to some of the concerns expressed on this program on behalf of concerned citizens throughout our community and around the globe. On this week's program, COVID-19, camouflaging even greater threats to democracy and public health. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 19th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland, the beginning of respectful relations between Indigenous and settlers must start with a recognition of the harms of broken treaties and colonization by the latter and a recognition that reparations are in order toward the former. We start our show now with news notes, sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. We feel that we must have weapons to protect ourselves from the weapons of the enemy. This fear legitimizes the development and stockpiling of new weapons and results in the election of public officials who will not hesitate to use violence. 
This in turn attracts the warrior to public office and reinforces his or her belief that military might is the best assurance of security. If the public were convinced that there were real, viable alternatives to war, such figures would lose their mandate. Therefore, it is vital that a new concept of security is devised, which puts Earth and its inhabitants first. That comes from an excerpt from Dr. Rosalie Bertel's book entitled Planet Earth, The Latest Weapon of War. Under the headline, Dr. Rosalie Bertel, Zero Tolerance for the Destructive Power of War, Illuminating the Path to Peace, by Dr. Rosalie Bertel and Hildegard Beckler, posted May 18th. In comments carried by the state-run Korean Central News Agency, or KCNA, on Monday, an official with the Foreign Ministry's Japan Research Center, Kim Shoha, said Washington is gradually pushing NATO into Asia through partnerships with regional powers. It is an open secret that the United States has been trying to create a military alliance like this in the Asia-Pacific region, he said, adding that the, quote, recent unprecedented military collusion between Japan and NATO is arousing great concern and alertness in the international community, unquote. Kim went on to cite recent reports that NATO is now in talks to open a, quote, liaison office, unquote, in Japan, its first such facility in Asia. The office would be used to, quote, conduct periodic consultations with Japan and key partners in the region, such as South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, unquote. According to the Nikkei Asia News website, Quote, All facts clearly show that NATO's attempt to advance into the Asia-Pacific region through military collusion with Japan has entered a dangerous implementation phase, unquote. The North Korean Foreign Ministry official continued, also pointing to other, quote, confrontational alliances, unquote, such as the Quad Bloc which Beijing has decried as an, quote, Asian NATO, unquote, and AUKUS pact between Australia, the UK, and the US. That comes from the article, NATO is creeping into Asia, warns North Korea, by countercurrents.org, posted May 18th, originally published on Countercurrents. According official sources monitored by this author, the peace plan is backed by African leaders of the Comoro Islands, who now hold the rotating presidency of the African Union, Senegal, Uganda, Egypt, the Republic of the Congo, and Zambia. Four of those six African countries, South Africa, Congo, Senegal, and Uganda, abstained from a UN vote last year on condemning Russia's invasion. Zambia and Egypt voted in favor of the motion. These countries are now trying to persuade UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and other countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom, to support the African initiative. 
The document includes a provision on immediate ceasefire and designates the United Nations as the main platform for the Ukrainian peace process. That comes from the article, Russia, Ukraine, and the African Mediators, by Kester Ken Clomega, posted May 18th. They outright deny providing Putin his wicked tools, as you'd expect. Meanwhile, the sub-imperialists at arms corps seems happy enough to authorize supply of SA arms to seven NATO countries, as noted below. And according to chairperson Philip Dexter, the firm is explicitly committed to quote-unquote commercialization of its so-called services. But as far as I know, Arms Corps is not an arms manufacturer. That function was sent over to Denel some years ago. So, if Ruben Brigadier is correct that there was an upload of guns and or ammo, and if he risked diplomatic chaos to tell that to us last Thursday, then who in S.A. made and arranged their delivery through a naval base last December? That comes from the article, South Africa, quote-unquote, mischief makers. Is ugly American ambassador to Pretoria, Ruben Brigadier, correct that South Africa weapons were shipped to Russia? by Professor Patrick Bond, posted May 18th. In about two months, the money to send more military resources will end, and then there is a risk of an abrupt interruption of the supply, which tends to severely damage the regime's forces on the battlefield. So, if no effective results are achieved by the Ukrainian armed forces in the so-called, quote, spring counteroffensive, unquote, surely the situation will become even worse during the summer. Quote, re-upping the money won't be easy. U.S. has about $6 billion left based on the rate of announcements the money to draw down existing U.S. stockpiles will expire in July. That would mean the flow of equipment could be disrupted if Kiev has to wait an extended period for a new tranche of funding, unquote, source said. It was added by the informants that the White House is already discussing a new aid package for Kiev which, depending on the allocated amount, could further accelerate the depletion of military assistance reserves. That comes from the article, USA to Kiev about to quote-unquote dry up, by Lucas Leros de Almeida, posted May 18th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Dr. Naomi Wolf was uh, recently censored by the UK moderator Ofcom for comments she made on Mark Stein's show uh, talking about harms to women and babies. 
that are tabulated in uh, Pfizer's own internal documents. Uh, but she's not backing down. She, she comes on the Global Research News Hour to defend against the attack by Ofcom, supposedly in the public interest. Um, so Naomi Wolf is founder and CEO of the Daily Clout, an online media company, uh, which reviews and interprets legislation for the lay public in the United States. She's been a noted journalist for decades, as well as a writer and political consultant. And she joins us now, uh, Naomi Wolf. Welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks so much for having me back. I appreciate being here. Now, before we, we get into the act of, of censorship by Ofcom, uh, directed at GB News, Mark Stain, and yourself, take us back several months to, to your decision to read the Pfizer files, which were released as part of a, an, a FOIA request in, in September of 2021 by public health and medical professionals for transparency that... that Pfizer and FDA sought to conceal for 55 years. Um, they lost in court, but uh, you got hold of 500 yeah. files, I believe, referring to Pfizer's old research on their, uh, their own vaccine in the early months of 2021. I know that there were files detailing abnormal adverse reactions and, and even deaths. Point to the highlights of, of what you and your crew at Daily Clout found source, sourcing Pfizer itself. Exactly. So uh, you definitely have it right about the origin of these documents. Um, it was a successful lawsuit by Aaron Siri and this group that you've um, you've mentioned, and they uh, forced the FDA to release these documents that were in the FDA's custody. The FDA had requested the judge that they be, they be kept hidden for 75 years, um, and now we know why. And uh, it's um, actually 55,000 documents a month. So it's a vast tranche of documents. And I was concerned as a journalist when I you know, heard the terms of the release that these documents would go into the memory hole because A, they're so voluminous that no one journalist can read through them. And B, they're written in very technical language that only scientists and physicians really understand. So I put a call out for volunteers and we now have 3,500 experts from all over the world, um, ranging from uh, medical fraud investigators, um, RNs, physicians, oncologists, anesthesiologists, cardiologists, pathologists, radiologists. Um, we have biological scientists, research scientists, lab clinicians, uh, biostatisticians. I mean, people with the most impeccable credentials, all of whom are um, organized into six working groups under the leadership of the extraordinary Amy Kelly, our COO and project director. And I really have to credit them. I can't understand these documents, you know, in their raw state, but these um, highly trained experts did produce now 71 reports. And they're, the first 50 or so are in a book that you can order on Amazon called the War Room Daily Club Pfizer Documents Research Analysis reports. But um, the headline is what they found. It, it's probably the most just, important sir, project. Just let me stop, stop you for a second. I mean, how, you, you managed to get 3,500 uh, medical and, and scientific experts uh, you know, on board. I mean, Great. I don't know. I guess I'm wondering how, how exactly you went about tracking them down. And how right. did Good you question. So uh, they know, volunteer and we set up a very... Um, kind of formal process where they submit their CVs and they submit their wish to to volunteer, but really anyone can volunteer. Um, it's really a crowdsourced interpretation. That said, Amy Kelly is a genius. She's a Six Sigma project manager. She's a highly credentialed project manager. So it was chaos before she came on board, but she organized them into these six working groups and each has a committee of experts um, who are 
you know, physicians basically, or scientists who read through the reports, correct them, check them, um, make sure that they're perfect. And then they come to me and I've taught these leaders of these groups to teach their volunteers how to write in language that anyone can understand. So at first the reports were very, very technical, but now they're very easy to understand. These people have had a fast learning curve. Um, and we've had, we have like probably six or 700 pages now of reports, one error, quickly okay. corrected a math yeah. error. So, yeah, well, we'll talk about some of the, uh, I guess, non-erroneous uh, aspects of the, you know, what really caught your eye uh, when, when you, they, they completed that analysis. Sure. Um, so the headlines are that, and by the way, I want to say something else about how um, impeccable these reports are. It's been three months since we published the Pfizer book, and all of these reports are up on Daily Cloud for anyone to see. If we had had anything that was not 100% correct, we would have had a lawyer's letter by now from Pfizer for defamation or for you know fraud or for some other reputational crime. Crickets, nothing. Um, Pfizer hasn't sent a spokesperson to say we're wrong. There's been no ability to debunk any you know any of what the reports have put out, um, except for again that one math error that was you know taken down immediately, um, but. And it turns out that the accurate statistic was twice as bad as the as the mistaken statistic. So, um, and the other thing is that these reports link to the original documents. So people don't have to take my word for it or even the experts' word for it. The primary documents are right there. You can just click through and see these are right there, Pfizer's own internal documents that they thought would never see the light of day. So um, it's an extraordinary effort. So now to the findings. Uh, these experts have found the greatest crime against humanity in recorded history. Um, and they found everything ranging from the fact that within a month after rollout, Pfizer knew that the vaccines did not work to stop COVID. They didn't work. Failure of efficacy and vaccine failure are Pfizer's words. And the third most common side effect upon getting the vaccine is COVID. You've, you heard that right. Um, so the whole drama that followed, all the mandates, all the people losing their jobs, all the children forced to be injected to go to school, all of this was based on a lie. These injections did not stop COVID. They were, were useless at their stated purpose. Um, within a few months, Pfizer knew that they had to hire, they hired 2,400 full-time staffers to deal with the flood of adverse events reports that they were receiving and that they expected to receive. There are 1,223 deaths in the Pfizer documents, and now we have four reports that show that half of the adverse events in those reports were within 48 hours after the injection, including a number of deaths. So it's a mass murder situation that Pfizer knew was mass murder and they kept going. Um, Pfizer knew, well, we were told that the material stayed in the injection site in the deltoid, but that is not true. And Pfizer knew that. Um, the documents show that the materials biodistribute within 48 hours to every part of the human body, including accumulating in the brain, which accounts for some dramatic personality changes, anger issues, focus issues that many people notice in their loved ones or they're reporting but it also accumulates in the ovaries if you're a woman, in the spleen, in the liver, the adrenals, and the lymph. So there's no mechanism our experts have found for these materials leaving the body. And this is lipid nanoparticles and industrial fat, uh, polyethylene glycol, which coats it. That's a petroleum product. It's an antifreeze. Um, it includes mRNA and it includes spike protein, which is toxic. So the lipid nanoparticles especially accumulate, as I noted. Um, and you get one injection, then you get a second injection then you get a booster, then you get a second booster. So 
all of these materials are accumulating with every injection, but our experts have found no mechanism where, whereby they leave the body. So especially with women, you're packing industrial fats and, and petroleum into your ovaries with every injection. And it's also quite, I mean, it's quite uh, extraordinary, the results of uh, you know, pregnant women ingesting, taking on the Well, the I should vaccine, skip ahead right? to that with the limited time that we have. I mean, I can skip right over ten, tens of thousands of cases of joint pain. We just issued Report 71 on arthritis. They gave arthritis to tiny children, even before this injection was authorized for children and a baby. Um, and there, there's a four to one ratio of women to men being adversely affected in multiple systems, organ systems and, and body systems that we've seen, um, including this. So they literally, and again, half of the adverse events were within 48 hours, almost all of them were within 32 days. So it's literally an injection that gives people arthritis, gives people you know, joint pain. I mean, think about all the people you know who are having knee replacements, shoulder replacements, their ankles are giving out, um, they're limping. Uh, now we know why, right? But I can skip ahead. Thousands of strokes, um, neurological events. Nurses are telling me they're seeing neurological events they've never seen before. Dementias, epilepsy, Guillain-Barre, Bell's palsy, convulsions, tremors. And we know why now the lipid nanoparticles traverse the, uh, traverse the uh, myelin sheath, which is what conducts um, electrical impulses for healthy nerve reactions. Um, we, you know, there's so many blood problems, blood clots, lung clots, leg clots, um, thrombocytopenia. Uh, and now we know why lipid nanoparticles coalesce in the blood at room temperature, at body temperature, they thicken. Um, and that's why you saw online examples of like unvaccinated blood versus vaccinated blood and vaccinated blood was like viscous. I mean, that's literally what's happening is that these industrial fats are are coalescing. You know, heart attacks, so many heart problems, uh, my, myocarditis, pericarditis. Pfizer knew within, by April of 2021, that the injections caused 31, I'm sorry, 35 minors to sustain heart damage within a week after being injected. And they didn't tell American parents or youths. Instead, they rolled out a huge propaganda campaign that summer aimed at teenagers and young adults to get them vaccinated for grandma. And they didn't tell parents about the elevated risk of myocarditis till August of that year, four months later, after millions of teens had been vaccinated. Um, but let me skip ahead to the, the centerpiece in a way. Like all of these things are horrible, but you know, liver damage, there's a report on liver, liver damage. Again, half of the adverse events within 48 hours. And again, far more women injured than men. Kidney damage, same thing. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's like brain issues. Um, but skipping ahead to the centerpiece of the documents is a 360 degree attack on human reproduction, and especially on female reproduction. So they and they knew all of this that all of this would happen. So I was deplatformed in June of 2021 for one accurate tweet that alerted women that they other women were reporting menstrual problems on being mRNA vaccinated. And there was a global smear campaign aimed at me. But that doesn't matter. What matters was that they suppressed a, a critical discussion. If you have menstrual problems in 2021, there are going to be fertility problems by 2023. And that's exactly what we're seeing. There's a 13 to 20% drop in live births um, based on government data. This is Igor Chudov's work, all government databases. There are a million missing babies in Western Europe. Scotland has doubled the usual rates of spontaneous abortions and miscarriages. Country after country, there's a baby die-off. And now we know why. The lipid nanoparticles traverse the placenta. They compromise the placenta. So now midwives and maternal fetal uh, medicine specialists are seeing these compromised placentas with networks of calcifications that are starving and suffocating the babies of nutrients and oxygen or shrunken placentas that 
the baby can't grow normally um, and the malformations uh, in the babies that you described they their, their environment has lipid you know industrial fats and and antifreeze ingredients in them but these materials go into the baby so they also degrade the testes and latex cells and sertoli cells of fetal baby boys so even if the babies you know these fetuses obviously are not vaccinated their moms are vaccinated they're they're probably not going to be able to grow up as normal men because it's those cells that regulate male hormones at puberty and turn boys into what we recognize as adult men, deep voices, facial hair, body hair, broad shoulders, you know, the ability to reproduce. That is not being switched on. It's being degraded. Um, the lipid nanoparticles get into the breast milk. And I, five days before Rochelle Walensky resigned, we issued report 69, which shows a, a, a summary of the research by Pfizer on pregnancy and lactation. And it shows that babies were dying in utero when their moms were vaccinated and that Pfizer identified the reason for their being premature and dying as transplacental exposure to the vaccine, which is, a you know, a, that's their, their language. And this is while all these spokespeople were saying, if you're pregnant, you have to get vaccinated to protect your baby. The materials can't cross the placenta. It was a lie. They knew that it would cross the placenta and kill babies. And they also knew that the materials get into breast milk of vaccinated moms and poison babies. And in the Pfizer documents, four women have blue-green breast milk, lactating women. And these babies are going into convulsions. And one poor baby died uh, of, of convulsions um, after drinking um, its mom's breast milk. And they, they knew, like there's a chart of the horrible things that babies suffered upon nursing from vaccinated moms. And the chart is right there in this like scientific clinical language, like fever, chills, vision blurring, um, you know, swelling of tissues, uh, you know, I mean, uh, vomiting. I mean, they, they knew that they were poisoning babies with the mom's breast milk. They turned the human body into a bioweapon, basically to attack other bodies. Are you saying that, uh, that, that Rochelle Walensky resigned, you know, shortly after you released that report? I mean, you drawing a direct connection there? I mean, obviously, I'm a journalist, you know, I don't have a smoking gun, but you should see Report 69, you know, and, and Rochelle Walensky has the pregnancy and lactation report. It's an eight page document that shows that the injection was murdering babies and poisoning and poisoning their mom's breast milk. So if she didn't resign, she'd have to answer the question, why did three days after that report was turned in, she gave a press conference at the White House telling women to get vaccinated and that she recommended vaccination. So she's she's you know, criminally liable for all the babies that died when, when people took their advice and all the moms who poisoned their babies inadvertently, she knew. So did she tell me, did a source tell me she resigned? No, but if there's an investigation, I will bet you that, you know, report 69 was a factor and that there are internal communications about that. Look, I know these people are monitoring our work because two attorneys general sued the White House and found out that the CDC, the White House, the DHS, Twitter, and Facebook were all discussing my original tweet, my tweet about, you know, vac vaccinated women having menstrual problems and sending out a bolo, be on the lookout, like colluding to attack me. So it's reasonable to assume they didn't stop monitoring what we were doing. And, you know, who wants to answer that question? You know, why did you tell the women of America to get vaccinated when you had this document that Report 69 presents to the world? Yeah. And and where, uh, where, where, where Ofcom comes in, I mean, this action. It, it was intended not just to silence you, but to, to have news producers like me, I suppose, uh, to, to think twice about having you and, and the issues you raise on air. Is that as... Where are you, lo where are you located geographically? Uh, Winnipeg, right in the center of... Uh, oh, wow. America. You are brave. 
Yeah. Um, Canada is a former free society. I'm so sorry for what happened to your beautiful country. I really am. I love, I love Canada. I can't believe how quickly it fell. Canada and Australia, man. Um, so yeah, so you are in that system and you are at risk. Uh, yes, Ofcom is Britain's media watchdog and they investigated me and Mark Stein and GB News starting right after uh, an interview I gave seven months ago in which I presented this information, especially about women and babies. And they set three days after Rochelle Walensky resigned, Ofcom concluded that I was guilty and Mark Stein and GB News were guilty of harm for bringing this information to the women of Britain and around the world where people were watching Mark Stein. Um, and the harm was, they didn't say it wasn't true. They didn't even call me for me to present my documentation. They didn't look at the documentation. Um, I actually sent Mark Stein's producer all of our documentation and they forwarded it. They didn't reference it in their decision. So they didn't say it wasn't true. They said it was harm because it might cause people to change their health practices, you know, God willing. Um, and they were also upset at me for saying that it's a mass murder event, which is just strictly true. 1,223 people died and they knew that they were killing people. So many of these deaths are within 48 hours of the injection and they just kept going. You know, it's, it's not an opinion. It's just a legal statement of fact. That was Dr. Naomi Wolf, journalist, best-selling author, and the founder and CEO of Daily Clout. To get more details about her case and about ways you can help, visit the site dailyclout.io. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We're delighted to have Professor Magna Havas with us. Uh, she's a professor emerita at Trent University with expertise in environmental toxicology. Her research since the 1990s is concerned with the biological effects of electromagnetic pollution, including radio frequency radiation, electromagnetic fields, dirty electricity, and ground current. She's given in excess of 360 presentations in more than 30 countries and at more than 24 universities or colleges on her research. Dr. Havas provides expert testimony on the health effects of electromagnetic pollution as they relate to occupational exposure, high voltage transmission lines, magnetic fields, and both cell phone and broadcast antennas. In a recent talk, she discussed how there was a connection between COVID-19 illness and radio frequency radiation. Global Research News Hour was intrigued with her analysis, so we thought we would share it with our listeners. Professor Magna Havas, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Now, the, the spread of SARS-CoV-2, as they say, just happened to come along at the same time as these uh, 5G cell towers were being installed in countries around the world. Are, are you suggesting that in areas where 4G and, and 5G and, and now millimeter wave radiation is more intense, that the health impacts from COVID-19 have been more pronounced. Well, that's what it seems like. Um, colleagues of mine who are experts on electromagnetic pollution and some of the health effects uh, were noting that when COVID-19 hit, 
and we were, you know, all in lockdown um, and we were getting the news from Johns Hopkins University of what the symptoms were that people were experiencing. A lot of the questions among my colleagues was, you know, could this be because they're rolling out 5G and are they really suffering from COVID-19 or is it electro hypersensitivity? Because the symptoms are very similar for the, both of those um, conditions. You have to have some ability to separate the 5G from uh, other factors, you know. That's right. Um, and that's hard to do now because um, there's radio frequency radiation everywhere. The levels are going up exponentially from, you know, cell towers that people are exposed to near their homes or their, their schools or where they work. Uh, we have a lot of devices in the home that also emit radio frequency radiation. We have smart meters that are placed on our homes. Um, and now with 5G, the small cells coming into different communities, it's just raising the background levels of radio frequency radiation to the point where fewer people are able to tolerate the exposure. Mm. So what, what kind of factors uh, is, is the radio frequency radiation actually having on immunity, on blood cells and, and other uh, human physiological reasons that, that you've seen so far? Well, you know, the major reason we were looking at whether there was a connection between COVID-19 and radiofrequency radiation was the fact that people who are exposed to radio frequencies on a regular basis, so they're they're constantly exposed, um, they one of the effects of exposure is that it impairs your immune system. And so if you have an impaired immune system, you're more likely um, to catch the virus, so like just like a cold, catch the cold, uh, and you're more likely to have severe symptoms that perhaps last longer uh, than for people whose immune system isn't impaired. And that's why we originally thought there might be a connection between the two of them. But radiofrequency radiation has a lot of effects on the body. And I'd say about, 80% um, of the symptoms overlap with COVID-19. The most common symptom for people who are sensitive to this radiation is impaired sleep. So they have difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. Uh, they wake up and they're often tired. So they're experiencing chronic fatigue during the day. They often have uh, aches and pains in different parts of their body. It starts often with a headache uh, after using a cell phone for you know half an hour or so, and then the headache becomes more severe. Uh, but you can have aches and pains in different parts of your body that tend to move around a little bit. Um, there's cognitive dysfunction. So very often individuals have difficulty with short-term memory. They have difficulty concentrating. There's mood disturbances, particularly anxiety. Um, some have a panic attack when they're exposed and their heart just starts racing. They go into a, a fight or flight mode. And sometimes it's associated with things like depression. Uh, but the symptoms go beyond that. There's heart palpitations. There's effects on the blood. Um, the blood becomes much more viscous, uh, so it doesn't flow as smoothly in the body. And this puts added pressure on the cardiovascular system, obviously. Um, but radiofrequency radiation is a neurotoxin. And so it's affecting our nervous system. And to a certain degree, it's affecting other systems in the body through the nervous system. So this is a pretty serious um, uh, type of, of um, 
environmental toxin that very few people are aware of because you know they can't sense it um, unless you're sensitive. Uh, so you don't know when you're exposed and when you're not exposed necessarily. And so you can't avoid the exposure until you start getting ill and then you try to figure out why am I ill? Why am I so tired when I haven't really done anything? Uh, and then as you start to figure things out, and if you get a meter to measure it, um, then it becomes incredibly obvious. Um, and once you do determine what you're exposed to with appropriate um, technology equipment, uh, you can then begin to eliminate your exposure, minimize your exposure. And that's when a lot of your symptoms begin to disappear. But the symptoms, uh, one of you know, it's called electro hypersensitivity, but I call it rapid aging syndrome uh, because when you talk to people who are sensitive, who are reacting to this radiation, they will, and you point out their symptoms to them, they say, Well, I'm just getting older, you know, and this is normal for older people not to be able to sleep or not to be able to think clearly. And that could be the case, they could be aging, but aging doesn't reverse itself. Whereas with this particular illness, when you go into an electromagnetically clean environment, your symptoms diminish. So it's like you're getting younger. Mm. Uh, and that's why I call it rapid aging syndrome. You noted that uh, areas like the United States and Canada and Western Europe, where there's a, a lot of 5G, you know, the, the illnesses were a great deal more severe than areas like like Africa. You know, is there any way you can, uh, you know, clarify? Like, have have you ever been able to separate out all the other factors? Like, oh, I don't know, use of ivermectin or sunlight or. or dense population, denser populations in Western cities, that sort of thing? Well, when I first started looking at the data, you know, in the lockdown in um, 2020, March of 2020, I began to follow the news on how, how the virus was spreading in different parts of the globe. And I became fascinated by the fact that it wasn't spreading equally. Um, it was very uh, toxic in New York, for example, particularly in New York and the United States, where a lot of people were um, being diagnosed with it. And there was a huge number of deaths. And part of that was, you know, because they took, they put the um, ill people into homes for the aged and, you know, they are very sensitive. They have a compromised immune system. And so I began to try to figure out, well, what is causing the unequal distribution of this particular viral spread? And one of the first things I looked at was population density, since this is supposedly a contagious virus. Um, the closer people to are together, the more people there are, the faster it's going to spread in the population. But that kind of broke down when you looked at places like Africa, particularly Africa, um, there they have dense populations. Um, some of the countries have a, a, a reduced uh, healthcare system. So you might expect it to spread there very, very quickly, just like a lot of other, you know, biological diseases, malaria and some other illnesses spread in Africa. But the uh, number of people being affected by COVID-19 was very, very low and remains low compared to other regions. And Wuhan was, you know, where the outbreak originally was reported. And Wuhan, just prior to the uh, report of the vax uh, of, of the COVID, actually had 5G antennas installed. So it's a very advanced city. 
Um, and places like Northern Italy had just had 5G antennas rolled out. And we know that the number of deaths in particularly Northern Italy was very high. And even on the Princess Cruise uh, ship, um, they had people on there and um, the, the number of people who actually developed the infection and uh, the number of people that died were also quite high. And as you may recall, they had to keep the um, passengers on the cruise ship for a long period of time because they didn't quite know what to do with them. And they had 5G as well. And so there seemed to be an overlap between the rollout of 5G and the um, locations that were having a high incidence rate and a high death rate as well. And so one of the things we did is a colleague um, and myself, Angela Siang and I looked at the data for the United States uh, because they were just rolling out 5G while most of us were locked down. Uh, the telecommunication industry was very quickly erecting antennas um, all over the all over the globe, uh, but particularly in in Canada, Europe, and and um, United States. And um, so, when this type of radiation is rolled out, um, when the antennas are placed very close to people, the levels of exposure are much much higher. And so we began to look at states. Um, that had 5G deployed and states that were still, um, you know, waiting for, for the antennas to be, be erected. And we did a, a study where we looked at the incidence rate and the death rate from COVID and compared it to whether or not 5G was present or absent in the state. And we found roughly a doubling of the death rate. Uh, for states that had 5G antennas um, with the millimeter wave antennas um, uh, deployed. And that caused us quite a bit of concern. We repeated the study uh, for different periods of time. And we also looked at counties in the United States and found virtually the same thing. So if we looked at it by state or by county and compared with and without 5G antennas, there was a large um, difference that was statistically significant uh, for the number of people uh, per population and the death per population being much, much higher with the 5G antennas uh, deployed. Wow. I mean, I'm wondering if uh, you the, the, this whole um Incidents. I mean, okay. International lawyer Reiner Fulmick had spoken about five G as as being, and he's like a, a major you know, international lawyer, and he's saying that uh, that five G is 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 being even a bigger concern than COVID uh, or, or the vaccine. I mean, could could we come to the conclusion that the pandemic of COVID is is in some sense masking the the, the very real dangers? of 5G and millimeter waves, because let's face it, I mean, anytime somebody gets, if somebody, uh, you know, if they, it's found that they got, you know, uh, infected with, with, with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they are said to have died of COVID. So it, it completely threw a, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the epidemiology uh, in, in some disarray, I, I should think. I agree with you entirely. And that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, uh, that you know, COVID might be uh, masking uh, another 
potential environmental problem. Um, I don't know if I would say it's it's worse than COVID, but I think if you put it together with COVID and the vaccines, um, um, I think you know we're really almost neck and neck. And I think over time, 5G will prove to be much more harmful than COVID and the vaccines together uh, because it's present in the environment. It's never been tested uh, for the health effects on humans for long-term exposure. And the only uses of 5G millimeter wave. So one of the difference, differences between 4G and 5G is that 5G has um, three different frequency bands. It has uh, frequencies below six gigahertz and uh, gigahertz is just um, six billion cycles per second. It's just the frequency uh, of the carrier wave. And it also has something called millimeter waves. And the millimeter wave part of 5G is novel. That's it's that's never been tested. Neither have any of the others prior to deployment. So 3G and 4G weren't tested prior to deployment either. But there have been so many studies now showing how harmful uh, these, you know, this radiation is. And so we now add to that millimeter waves as well, which is basically what 5G is. Um, and the only uses of millimeter waves um, so far is there's some very limited uses in medicine uh, where the person or the patient would be exposed for a matter of a few minutes at the most. Uh, we use it when we uh, go through security at airports, those um, uh, large machines that you step into and raise your arms, you know, like you're, you know, raising your arms as though someone's pointing them at you. Um, if you go into one of those, they use millimeter waves. Uh, and then the military uses millimeter waves for crowd control, where they can uh, aim a beam at a crowd um, and at a much higher intensity than obviously what's being used for um, the telecom purposes. Um, and it causes your um, the any moisture in your skin to uh, heat up very, very quickly. And it's incredibly painful. And so they could aim this at a, gra at, at a crowd, push the button and people will get out of the way instantly. It passes through clothing, very thick clothing, and it just heats up the surface of the skin very, very unpleasant, and also dangerous from the perspective of your eyes that are very, very sensitive to this form of radiation. And they have um, military personnel testing out um, the crowd control technology. They have um, security personnel at airports testing out their technology to make sure it's working um, several times a day. And some of these people are beginning to complain of illnesses um, that they didn't normally have. And I have a feeling it's related to their exposure to radio frequency and microwave radiation. You've been studying this issue for literally decades now, and you know the the whole all the health effects, and it's like you and and other uh, scientists around the world, like in, in the hundreds, are are showing that this stuff is not safe. I, I'm wondering, is is this this the the work of of players in our society that are so determined to have it that human health is is not really an issue here? I mean, is it like? Like they say, uh, the banks, certain banks are too big to fail. I mean, is are we dedicated to this regardless of it? Or, or, or what is it about it that leads you to believe that, uh, you know, that no matter what the health science says, they're, they're determined to continue it? 
Well, it's interesting. There's been a collusion between um, the wireless industry and the government agencies that are supposed to be regulating that industry. Um, in the United States, it would be the Federal Communication Commission and the um, um, Food and Drug Administration. Those two would be uh, critical for, for this particular technology. And Neither one of those government agencies are, are claiming that this is harmful. As a matter of fact, what they're claiming is that um, the radiation that we're exposed to currently is safe based on their guidelines. And their guidelines protect only against a heating effect. So they don't recognize the concept of electro hypersensitivity. Um, they don't attribute any cancers to this radiation. Um, there's also problems with reproduction that they simply ignore. And there's currently a, a legal action against the Federal Communication Commission for not uh, looking at the science and for not updating their guidelines, which, which they should do on a regular basis anyway. And since those guidelines were established, they, they were actually established prior to um, the you know common use of cell phones and prior to smart meters and prior to Wi-Fi. So the environment has changed enormously since those guidelines were initially um, uh, designed to protect people. And they were initially designed to protect the military because it came out of World War II and exposure to radar. Radar uses microwaves. And um, uh, the US military realized that some levels of microwaves must be harmful. Uh, and so they tried to come up with what that level would be. And they made the false assumption that the only effect this, this radiation could have on the body is heating. Uh, and they based that on very limited scientific evidence. It does heat your body, but it causes all sorts of other health effects uh, prior to that uh, higher thermal level. And so basically the government is not protecting the population. That's true in the United States, it's true in Canada, it's true in Britain, Japan, a few other countries. And then there are some countries that have much more stringent guidelines um, because they recognize the harmful biological effects, not only to people, but also to plants and animals. Birds are affected by it, insects are affected by it. Trees are dying, bushes are dying that are close to smart meters, for example, or cell phone antennas. And they're simply, you know, acting like ostriches and putting their head and burying their head in the sand, hoping that this will go away. And this won't go away. If anything, it's going to get a lot worse before it begins to get better. And I'm, I'm hopeful because we've been able to take lead out of gasoline. So we have examples of environmental pollutants that were ubiquitous, that were virtually everywhere. And eventually, you know, society came around and they said, okay, this is harmful. So we can't put lead in, in, in gasoline. We can't put lead in paint. Um, and so we've reduced the lead exposure um, enormously. And I think ultimately the same thing will happen to this radiation. The longer it takes, unfortunately, um, the more people and the more plants and animals that are going to be adversely affected. In just a, about a minute left, I mean, can you talk about the kind of treatments that uh, that you would recommend for for lessening the, the illness or complications linked to uh, the uh, radio frequency uh, radiation and COVID-19 or whatever uh, other illness comes along to replace it? 
Right. Well, the critical thing is you have to minimize your exposure. You have to reduce your exposure. You can't get well if you continue to be exposed. So that's absolutely critical. You have to treat the environment. And there are ways of doing that. Some is through behavior, just, you know, simply not putting your cell phone to your head when you're talking, putting it on speaker mode, for example, on a table and using it that way minimizes your exposure enormously. There's also technology available. There's film for windows. So if you happen to be living in a home where the uh, cell tower is just across the street from you, you can block the radiation coming into your home with fabric, with uh, film for your windows, with paint. Uh, and that's what people are doing. But you have to go beyond that. Uh, some people who have just recently become sensitive can recover completely just by minimizing their exposure. But other people need to take it one step beyond that. And they need to improve their immune system, you know, with, with appropriate uh, vitamins, minerals. Vitamin D helps enormously with both COVID, obviously, and with, um, with radiofrequency radiation. So building up your immune system is also critical. Detoxing your body is critical. The more metals you have, the more neurotoxic agents you have, mercury fillings, for example, uh, can make it a lot worse. And in some cases, you have to minimize your exposure to other types of toxins in the environment as well, you know, bacteria, fungus, some people live in homes with a lot of mold, and that could enhance your sensitivity to the radiation. So there's quite a few things that you can do under the, you know, guidance of a, a healthcare provider, but you also have to minimize your exposure. And the best way to do that is measure what you have in your home and then unplug things or replace them with wired connections. Okay. Thank you very much for this information, uh, Magda Havas, and, and for your ongoing research into a, a critical aspect of the new technology. Thank you so much, Michael. Magna Havas is a professor emerita at uh, Trent University with expertise in ex environmental toxicology, speaking to us on radio frequency radiation and COVID-19. Last week, I mentioned that the chief provincial public health officer in Winnipeg, Manitoba, had declined my invitation for an interview. However, I happened to bump into him last Friday during the mention of an important provincial announcement at Portage Place downtown. I took the opportunity to seize the moment and interview him cold. So you're Dr. Brent Rusin, correct? Yeah, Brent Rusin, Chief Provincial Public Health Officer. Okay. Um, so I, you know, we've heard recently about the, the World Health Organization said that uh, while there's still ongoing concerns with the pandemic, that it's not an emergency anymore. Okay. So is that, uh, you know, that uh, that comforts your own position? I mean, should we take a similar position, another official position here in Winnipeg? So I think uh, I think it was reasonable to to lift the um, uh, you know the public health emergency of international concern. That's really what they lifted um, at the ground level here in in Manitoba. That doesn't really change what we do. Right? We're still uh, you know aware that COVID is here. Uh, we still see people hospitalized with it. Some uh, you know severely ill with it. So we're still taking these uh, uh, taking precautions. We're still um, you know ensuring that our vaccines are up to date and uh, you know really preparing for uh, this fall as well. Um, okay, and also there is this uh, the, the National Citizens Inquiry that had been going around. It was at CBC Winnipeg did an interview uh, about it uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, they, they said that uh, they, they reached out to you and to Jazz, and, and you turned them down because this is the National Citizens Inquiry. 
Do, 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 can you just explain, you know, why you would do that? Not when a lot of the uh, critiques were, were basically a critique of uh, you know, the position, including your, your own. Yeah, you know, there's there's been um, a, a lot of opportunity to uh, uh, to critique and to review and uh, uh, the response to the to pandemic, and uh, you know, uh, uh, we've uh, had even. Um, uh, you know, court cases, uh, you know, against us. So uh, we were, uh, uh, that was not the venue to uh, uh, to attest to anything of that nature. Things have been discussed much in the public. There's a lot of information out there. And, you know, like I alluded to, is um, that the pandemic was, uh, uh, had devastating effects on um, all aspects of our lives. And I think at this point, we have to start looking at how we can heal some of these divisions that were caused by the pandemic. It's just that there were so many uh, people there who were scientists and, and lawyers as well who were present at these talks, and they were bringing up things that like, the, the pandemic was a concern. There were indications, in their view, that uh, the, that the vaccines are also uh, having a, you know, a devastating impact. Uh, maybe you've heard of people like Charles Hoff, people who, like doctors who, I mean, you say there's been a lot of talk, but it's only one side of it, you know, and so there's no real essential debate. I mean, how do you just basically excuse people who are raising skeptical concerns that scientists do, but being essentially shut out by, by media and uh, other... Uh, well, certainly not shut out by, uh, by us. Uh, like in considerations on both sides of, of every intervention were taken, uh, taken very seriously throughout the pandemic. So uh, we um, are certainly not uh, shutting out views, but there are... Um, you know, a lot of scientific publications, a lot of scientific work, a lot of governing bodies uh, that discuss this. And of course, there, uh, throughout the pandemic, there were people who disagreed with some of those decisions. But uh, far and large, the, um, uh, the medical community uh, were uh, largely in agreement with, uh, with many of the steps that we took. But both sides and, and the, um, the impacts of any actions we took were, were fully considered each, uh, at each time. If you could do things differently, looking back and go back, what would you change, if anything? You know, well, this is uh, this is uh, you know a tough question to answer uh, just in a, in a venue like this. Um, you know, certainly uh, we need to be better prepared. You know, for the next uh, next event like this, and that's something we're definitely working on. Um, but you know, there's a lot of issues, and there's a lot of uh, um, learning that goes on, and even trying to. Um, deal with emerging evidence at a very rapid pace uh, during this. So it's a, so it's a very challenging time, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's the lessons learned. I think we're going to continue to be learning from this for years to come. Thank you very much, Thank you. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.